following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go this morning to the book of Zechariah. If you are new with us, we're glad you're with us. My name is Dave York. I'm the lead pastor here. It's my joy to uh, lead us through God's word this morning. Um, if you don't know where Zechariah is, go to the book of Matthew, then go to your left, one, you'll see Ma- Malachi, or as I was told when I was a kid, Malachi, <laughs> and, then, and then go to Zechariah, one book over, <clears throat> and you'll see that there as well. We'll be in Zechariah today. Um, Zechariah is a challenging book. Um, uh, it's, it's, um, it was a book that is utilized by John the Apostle to write the book of Revelation, um, it was a book that is, uh, most commentators will tell you, it is the most challenging book in the Old Testament to preach on. We're going to do it in one sermon. It's 14 chapters, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I told the elders uh, in, our, in our review and planning meeting on Tuesday, I said, listen, I'm already in Zechariah, and this book has got me on the mat. I mean, I, I'm, I cannot breathe. I mean, it is, it is consuming. It's challenging. Uh, by Friday, I was at my last point. And I told Perry about 4.30, 5 o'clock, I am going home. I, I've got to finish this tomorrow. This is ridiculously challenging. Um, yesterday, I got it all done, and then we went to dinner last night. And as I was at dinner, more things kept coming. So I got home about 9.30 and wrote more last night to just kind of get this thing, I think, kind of dialed in. So it's very challenging. One of the elders, uh, Dave Rubel, asked me on Friday, just make it into two sermons. And I said, I can't do that, man, because we, we've been in a series. We're doing one book a week. There's this challenge hanging over me, and I've got to get it done. So I think we've got it done. So by God's grace, I think he's going to meet us today. All right. So uh, certainly when his word is preached, <clears throat> God is going to meet us. Now, in, in C.S. Lewis's classic book, if you know this book, you'll understand this moment. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Four children find themselves in the magical yet frozen world of Narnia, which is under the oppressive rule of the White Witch. <clears throat> Narnia is in an eternal winter. Nothing grows. It's always gloomy. There's no hope. And as the children go through the forest, they meet a couple different characters. But one of them that's a fascinating one is one called Mr. Beaver. He's a talking beaver, right? So the kids, unsure of what is happening around them as they wander through the forest, they meet up with Mr. Beaver and they notice that as he wants them to come to his home, he puts his paws over his mouth as if to say, be quiet, don't talk. Because Mr. Beaver was nervous, there were spies in the woods that would hear what he's going to tell them. So when they go into his house, the children are intrigued and they are shocked as Mr. Beaver begins to speak. And he talks about all things Narnian and he tells them about the wicked white witch and her cunning and dark ways. But in a moment, Beaver lifts up his face and his face just lights up when he says, even though it's winter, something seems to be changing because Narnia's hope, Aslan, the great lion, is on the move and he might have already landed. And At that moment in the book, here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan any, was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. <clears throat> At the name of Aslan, every one of the children felt something jump in, it, in, in its inside. Edmund felt the sensation of mysterious horror. 
Peter suddenly brave, felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if something delicious, some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Now, maybe our world isn't as dark as Narnia or as gloomy as Narnia, but at times it sure feels like it, doesn't it? From international conflicts to domestic disputes over politics, things seem crazy. Maybe in your own family and relationships, things can get depressing as well, can't they? Friends aren't the same. Parent-child relationships have, have, have conflict and they take a hit and marriages struggle. And in your own heart and life, you feel things personally, they can get really discouraging. Temptations that you feel like you just can't overcome. Finances that seem so challenging and yet anxiety and fear are daily enemies, if not, if not regular companions that you feel right at your elbow. Not to mention the stress and pressure that we feel at work. The white witch may not be in control of things, but it sure feels like it sometimes. And that's the reason why we need the book of Zechariah. Now, here's what I hope we'll see. This is in the big idea on your outline. If you're new with us, you should have got an outline when you walked in the door. And that outline will have a big idea. And here's the big idea that we hope and pray that God would just deposit into our souls this morning. This world is full of disappointments and reasons for discouragement. But God is always on the move, and he wants his people to have hope. I'm going to read it again, and I just want you to let it deposit in your soul, even as you navigate right now through the things that are disappointing, discouraging, frustrating, hard for you right now. Your world is full of disappointments and reasons for discouragement. But your God is always on the move, and he wants you to have hope. So let's stand together. We're going to read Zechariah 1, 1 through 6, and we're going to jump to another section in the Bible in Zechariah. Now we stand here not because we think that you need to do more calisthenics, but because we we want to honor God in the reading of his word. So this is Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is the reading of God's word. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now skip over to chapter 9 with me. And let's look at two very important verses kind of in the middle of the book or just past the middle of the book. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. 
His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that in mysterious things, you have the ability to open our eyes to help us to see them and understand them. And I pray that would happen this morning. Open our eyes to the truths that are found in the book of Zechariah. But Lord, would you more importantly capture our hearts with the blessed hope, Jesus. Help us to see that he truly is the king who has come and who is always at work. Encourage your people this morning. Strengthen them by the power of your hand, the preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, let's start this morning by looking at our first point in the outline, which is um, Zechariah and his times. Now, let's not sugarcoat the book of Zechariah. It's weird, right? It's weird. Um, it is it is a challenging book. It is one of the oddest and strangest books you're going to read in the Bible. If you think the book of Revelation is interesting, take a long read of the book of Zechariah. It is just as challenging, and it's a forerunner, actually, to the book of Revelation as well. So if you've been reading the book all week, like many of you do, you read the book ahead or you read the text ahead to get ready for the sermon. And you've been reading this and you've been asking, like, I have no idea what this means. Welcome to the club, right? Welcome to the group of people that are standing before you that have a hard time knowing exactly what this book about. Virtually any scholar you read on this book has a variety of wide ranging opinions on it and will tell you that it is one of the most difficult books on the Bible to read, and they say, and understand, and they say chapters 9 through 14 are the most difficult chapters in the Bible to preach on. So we're going to attempt today to not preach just on those chapters, but on the whole book, right? So let's just eat the whole elephant at one time, right? Let's just get after this thing, right? There's no clear, logical layout of the book. There's nothing in the book that's a straight line. You're going to notice that in the preaching as I go through. I mean, moments, I'm going to just suddenly stop and we're going to another subject. The reason for that is that's the way the book is laid out. It's a weird and challenging book, but there are some things that are clear about the book. It begins in chapters, chapter one, one through six with a very clear message, which we're going to cover in a moment. And then from chapter one, verse seven through to the middle of chapter six, there's eight different dreams that Zechariah had in one night watch. So he went to sleep, had eight different dreams. And if you think your dreams are weird, that you might sometimes need to see a psychiatrist, wait till you read Zechariah's dreams. They are wacky, right? They're going to blow your mind. I just went and saw Black Panther the other day, and they had the dude with the, you know, the feet that had wings on it. That has nothing compared to what's going on in this book of Zechariah, right? In chapter 7 and 8, the people ask a question about fasting and the fulfillment of restoring Israel. In chapters 9 through 14, there are four oracles or sayings about the future king and his coming kingdom. That's the basic layout. And because of this, there is no way we're going to cover every blade of grass in the book of Zechariah. This has happened through the series of the Minor Prophets. Some of you have come and met me afterward and said, man, it was really good. I really wish you'd have covered this verse. This is a 40,000 flyover, level flyover, right? So we're looking from the moon down on the book of Zechariah to just get what is the story of this book. The prophet Zechariah came on the scene the same time as the prophet we studied last week, Haggai, came on the scene. 
Both men brought a word from the Lord to the people who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. They had been in exile for 50 years in Assyria, Persia, and Babylon and Persia, and they'd been returned to the land by the king of Persia to start rebuilding their spiritual city, Jerusalem, and rebuild the temp- their temple in 538 B.C. As soon as they started rebuilding the temple, their enemies who were around them appealed to the king to get him to stop the building, the rebuilding of the temple, which he agreed. For 16 years, the temple work has stopped. So you can imagine, we talked about last week, 16 years, the house of God lays in ruins, <clears throat> and they go about busying their lives. But in 522 B.C., the, pro- the old prophet Haggai, his young protege Zechariah, show up on the scene to give the people a word of the Lord that it's time to start rebuilding the work again, which they did. And the moment they got to work, bad things started happening. Now just put your mind for a moment If you're in Israel, imagine that you're in Jerusalem, you're putting your hands to the work, and and unlike most cities of the old ancient world, there is no walls to protect you. Jerusalem's walls are laid bare. They're not built up until Nehemiah shows up on the scene and starts rebuilding the walls. So in this moment, you're rebuilding this temple, and you are completely exposed to the outside world and to outside invaders coming to invade your capital city. That's what's happening. Not to mention there were enemies within the city who wanted them to stop rebuilding the temple. Internationally and globally, things are challenging as well. Persia, the nation that has actually funded this work, is going through change of leader after leader after leader. And every moment of constant change brings another division in the international global conflict. So here's what you have going on in Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem are struggling financially. They're struggling emotionally. They're struggling politically from within and from without. Everywhere they turned, disappointment lurked. Does that sound familiar? And it's during that time, that time of disappointment, disillusionment, discouragement, that this weird, odd, strange, challenging, wonderful book of Zechariah comes to them. It's a book about hope and longing for God in an age of discouragement. You can see why this book was really good for my soul in 2020. And his book called The Age of Discouragement, a commentary on Zechariah. Here's what Brian Gregory wrote. The book of Zechariah's most foundational purpose is to lift the eyes of the people of God from their discouraging circumstances to see the bigger picture of God's coming kingdom. If they could begin grasping that the kingdom of God was already prepared in heaven, they would find their discouragement melting away and a renewed motivation to do what the Lord was calling them to do, namely for them to build the temple, purge the social evils among them, and order their lives and communities around the priorities and expectations of God's coming kingdom. And what a good word for us. See, we too, don't we, live in a world that's discouraging and disappointing? Politically, things are a mess. Morally, things are declining virtually every second. Culturally, there's a plotting of evil and opposing of what is good. Not to mention, when you look at the church at large, you see churches who are giving in to cultural pressures, trying to combine worldly ideals with biblical principles, and you see a general compromise on the commands of Scripture, and they just make you wonder when you see these things, where is God in all of this, and how does he see it all? Around us, we see things that are discouraging. 
And that's why we need this, this odd yet wonderful book of Zechariah. It lifts our eyes from our discouraging circumstances to see a bigger picture of God's kingdom. Aslan is indeed on the move. And what I want to show you later in the book is he's indeed already landed. The book opens with the thought that hope brings repentance. You'll see this at our next point in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, the section that we already read. The people seem to be going backward. Even though they put their hands to the work of rebuilding the temple, they weren't devoted to the Lord. And so the prophet does something interesting. He reminds the people of their, of their ancestors' sin. You can see this in verse 2, verse 4, and verse 5. <clears throat> now, in our study of the minor prophets, we've seen over 200 years of Israel's history. And what we've noticed has been that they were prosperous, yet they'd forgotten their God. They were doing all sorts of different things, yet they were idolatrous and greedy and immoral. They'd forgotten the helpless among them, and they ran roughshod over the poor. And because of their sin, God exiled them from their land to Asia, I mean to Assyria, to Babylon, and to Persia. And now, after 50 years, they had returned, and it seemed they were slipping back into these old patterns of sin once again. So he reminds them of their past. But he also gives them a very clear call in verse 3. Return to me, and I will return to you. In other words, turn away from the worthless things you're doing, and turn back to me. This is God, the God of the universe, the God of their, of their, of their, uh, their covenants saying to them, yes, things are bad around you. Things are hard. They're probably going to get worse. But if you want to have hope for your present and hope for your future, return to me and I will return to you. And I want you to notice the direction of this. Notice this is God coming to them. God is initiating this. This is not the people coming to God saying, Lord, I wish you would receive us if we return to you. No, this is God, the merciful God of the universe, coming to them, telling them, drawing them with these remarkable words. It's almost like God saying to them, listen, you've given me all the reasons in the universe I need to reject you. You've been sinful, greedy, idolatrous, and you've forgotten me. Yet, listen, because I love you, if you will turn to me, if you'll come back to me, I will come back to you. I will, I will come to you. The good, merciful God who abounds in steadfast love tells them and tells us, return to me, and I will return to you. But notice that the good, merciful God, how personal this is to him. Return to me. He didn't say, return and do the things I told you to do. Return and rebuild the temple. He says, return to me. It's personal to God because God wants our hearts. More than just doing what God has told us to do, God wants to restore our hearts to him and have a personal relationship with him. More than rebuilding the temple, God wanted to rebuild their hearts. And the way to do that was through repentance. Turning back to God. Now, all indications from the text in chapter six, in verse six, is that the people did this. They repented and they got to work. They turned to God. And what's intriguing is in the book of Zechariah, you're going to notice this, that in the very next verses, ongoing is a message of hope to the people. In other words, hope begins with repentance. Hope 
begins with turning to God. God brought a message of hope because they turned. And I might ask you, have you turned to God? Maybe you are not a Christian and you don't believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I would agree with you that living in this world is tough and it's awfully discouraging. But I would also add to you and tell you that without Christ in this world, I don't know what you do. There's no hope in this world without Christ. And so put your hope in Christ. Turn to Christ. Come to Christ. And his promise is he he will come to you as, as well. Put your faith in Christ. But what about you, Christian? Those that have said, I, I believed in Jesus. I have a trust in Christ. I know this. Well, listen, may, maybe the frustrations of the last three to four years or this present day have caused you to put your hope in politics or in education as answers. Maybe the uncertainty of the times have caused you to put your hope in money, possessions, or or maybe it's just hoping to get away. And vacations are some land now, this thing that bring you peace and joy, and you look forward to that day as if it's going to bring you ultimate satisfaction. Here's the question that Zechariah is really laying out before us is this. Does God have your heart? Does God have your devotion, not your duty? Does he have your loyalty and not your lip service? Does God have your love? Does he have your devotion? See, hope begins with repentance. And we can't start getting hope without turning to God. Now, at this point in the book, it's intriguing because Zechariah now turns his attention in verse 7 of chapter 1 to their present day questions about their disappointment. Again, because they turned, he now gives them a message of hope. I, I wonder when I read the book and I just processed through it, I thought, I wondered. What would have happened if they hadn't repented? I don't think the message would have been hopeful. I think it would have been filled with consequence. But instead, from this point forward in the book, you're going to notice that he gives them a message of hope and he begins to answer questions of their disappointment. Again, put yourself in this moment. If you can, imagine walking around this city that you've lived in, that you have believed in, that this temple that you have worshipped at is now gone, and you're just laying brick upon brick upon brick. City walls are down all around you. Marauders are entering the city left and right. You're being accused by outsiders all over the place. Would you not have some questions? Is this temple going to get completed? Is God with us? Because it sure seems like he's not. And if he is with us, is he going to protect us from this? the enemies that keep coming after us? And with all the global trouble all around us, does God have a purpose and a plan for all of this international conflict? Well, that's our next point. Is that hope believes that God is at work. From chapter 1, verse 7, through chapter 6, verse 8, Zechariah answered some of these questions with very odd visions in a dream. And it seems to be one dream. Zechariah went to sleep one night, and God gave him eight different visions. Now, maybe you've had dreams like this. I was telling my wife, she knows what happens. I wake up in the morning sometimes, and I go, you won't believe this vivid dream that I just had. And I'm anxious, or I've been pouring sweat, or I've been wrestling with somebody, whatever it may be. And I share with her these dreams, and she's like, where did that come from? I I don't know. You know, I, I'm weird. This stuff's weird, right? When I read Zechariah's dreams, I take hope that I'm not so weird, right? Because <clears throat> all of these visions come on the same night, and they come three months after the end of verse 6. They're, they're odd, 
And so I'm just going to briefly explain them. Okay. Um, and even commentaries differ on how they match and how they work together. So we'll just go through the visions. I'm going to pop a few verses up on the screen for you that you'll see. So vision one is about horsemen and horses who patrol the earth. This vision, according to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, concludes that God will build his house, comfort Zion, and he will choose Jerusalem as his people. Vision 2 is about four different horns, just kind of sitting out on their own, right? I mean, I, you don't know. And craftsmen, craftsmen horns. I mean, where, how do those kind of things go together? I mean, I know some of you guys are builders, but you're probably not cattlemen at the same time. I mean, I don't know. Right. Where does this come from? Basically stating, according to chapter 1, verse 21, that the nations who oppose God's people will be scattered. Vision three is about a man with a a measuring line or a tape measure to measure Jerusalem. And he does this to just show that God is measuring out the city walls and saying to his people, listen, according to chapter two, verses five and eight and nine, that God will be their city walls. God will be their protection. And vision four is about Joshua, their high priest. And the accusations that Satan makes against him. And it's a call for them to remain faithful to God. According to chapter 3 verses 7 and 9, it's a promise that God will remove all their sin. And in this vision, we get a glimpse of this future leader for the first time called the branch. And in vision 5 is about golden lampstands with seven lips on them. I mean, for real? I mean, all I can think of like the Mick Jagger lips off of, you guys know what I'm talking about? Sit on top of a candle. How weird would that be to walk in a room and one of your friends has that one of those? You go, dude, I am not going to hang out with you for dinner. I mean, get this off the table. It's weird, right? This vision is about the fact that, that Israel may be small and frail, but God will accomplish his work by his spirit and by his power. Vision six is about a flying scroll, not a flying squirrel, which is about... The justice that God will bring on any who disobey him, according to chapter 5, verse 4. Vision 7 is about a woman in a basket who pops her head out. Her name is Wickedness. And then she gets flown away by two women who have stork wings. I mean, why not dove wings? Why not raven wings? A stork, stork wings, right? I mean, revealing that God will remove the wickedness from their land, according to chapter 5, verse 11. And vision 8 ties in with vision one about four chariots. Remember the horsemen and the horses patrolling the earth. And according to chapter six, verse eight, it's about God's spirit residing with his people. Now, these are weird, right? I mean, if we were meeting with Zechariah, we would have to say to him, listen, brother, I I don't have the ability to counsel you any further. I'm going to refer you to our main counsel at our church because you need help, right? I mean, that's how it would feel, right? But these odd visions while they seem strange, would have been remarkably encouraging to the people in Zechariah's time. Each one of them, virtually every one of the visions, answers a question they would have been asking. Is God with us? Yes. Will God have justice on our adversaries? Yes. Will God protect us from those adversaries? Yes. Will God finish building the temple? Yes. In other words, amid their disappointments... What God is saying through these night watch visions is God is on the move. He is at work. Now, again, just just think how hopeful this would be. God is at work right 
now. I mean, think about that in your life. The world is full of disappointments. But your God will bring justice. See, you may wonder if the conspiracy theories are true or if they're not true. I can tell you one thing. You don't know. Others don't know. And Facebook doesn't know. But there's one in the universe who knows it all. And he will one day expose all the secrets of the hearts of men and the secrets of the hearts of governments. He will one day be with you if you return to him. He will do his work. He is at work. How encouraging would that be? He will not disappoint. See, here's a question. Do you believe that about your God, that he is at work right now amidst all of your disappointments? See, his hand may be hidden, but his work will never be stopped. Circumstances may be disappointing, but God's presence will remain. Aslan is indeed on the move. Now, it's at this point in Zechariah, we jump into chapter 7. The people get wholeheartedly working on their hearts and the temple. At the end of chapter 8, going into chapter 7, there's a period of two years. Two years of work is done after Zechariah's dreams, and two years are two years away from the completion of the work of the temple. And the people come to Zechariah with a question about fasting. You see this in chapter 7 and 8. And the question was basically this. Since we're close to finishing the temple, and it looks like we're getting pretty close to things, when that moment happens, will God then set up the eternal kingdom that he promised to set up, and should we stop fasting and mourning? And here's the reason for their asking of this question. Israel fasted from food on certain months of the year, longing for their coming king, their future king, and mourning about their sin and their exile because of their sin. So the question they're asking is really important, and it's really appropriate. Since the temple represented God's presence with his people, and since that's close to being restored at their time, do they need to continue to mourn anymore and keep fasting, or does something need to change? Is it the time that God will restore the kingdom of Israel to her former glory? That's the question they're asking. And notice the Lord's response to this question. He gives them something from Israel's past. He said that he purposed to to bring disaster on them because of their sin. But according to chapter 8, in Zechariah's time, he's planning to do them good. And since his spirit has come to them, their fast will be turned into celebration. But they must continue to obey the Lord. They must continue to give their hearts to God. You might wonder, what is the connection between the question on fasting and these wacky visions that we just had? Well, here's the connection. In this world, we will face trouble. But in Christ, we have every reason to celebrate. Friends, part of our reason for getting discouraged and depressed and anxious about this world is we lose sight of Christ. In this world, we long for God to come and make all things new. I mean, don't you long for that? I mean, I got up yesterday or two days ago sore from a workout wondering, God, when are you going to restore my body? Some of you woke up this morning with aches and pains. Some of you woke up with, with relationships that are broken and you long for a day when all things are made new. We mourn because of that. We long for those days. We mourn because of the effects of sin on a Genesis 3 type of world. And Brian Gregory puts this together when he wrote these words. 
We should fast and we should feast. We fast because the bridegroom, Jesus, has gone away and we long for his reappearance. We long just as those, just as those in Zechariah's day, for God to intervene in history once again and for the eschatological end times reality to vividly portray, that were vividly portrayed in the night visions to become concrete in our world. As we do so, the important point to remember is that God is on the move and that we should join in the kingdom work he has given us to do. Aslan is indeed on the move. Hope believes that God is at work. It seems our screen went down. Is that what happened? You guys are staring at me like there's no quote on the page. Is that what happened to our screen? There it is. Right. That's such a great quote. I don't want you to miss it. So can I go back and reread this? Is it okay? Good. We should fast and we should feast. We fast because the bridegroom Jesus has gone away and we long for his reappearance. We long just as those in Zechariah's day for the God to, for God to intervene in history once again and for the eschatological end times reality so vividly portrayed in the night visions to become concrete in our world. As we do so, the important point to remember is that God is on the move and that we should join in the kingdom work he has given us to do. See, Aslan is indeed on the move. Hope believes that God is work is at work. Do you believe that? That right now, he is presently at work. But our next point shows us something different, though. Aslan has landed. Friends, I hope you understand this. Hope believes in the king and his everlasting kingdom. In chapter 9, the book changes direction. You're going to notice this when you read the book. There's some debate in in most historical contexts about this book, because it seems to be chapters 1 through 8 were written for the present context, and almost 40 years later, chapters 9 through 14 are then written. Some would say that's true, some would say that's not true. However, you will notice in the book, there's a change in the direction. Chapters 1 through 8 focus on Jerusalem and its immediate future with the temple being restored and Jerusalem being reestablished. Those chapters are about God restoring what was taken from them in their exile. So when they get back, God wants to restore everything they lost in the exile. But chapters 9 through 11 are about God's final plan for redemption, his complete restoration of his people through the coming work of his king. And that in chapters 9 through 14 comes into full view. In chapters 9 through 14, here's what you're going to find. Now, if you're going to take write down cross references, get your pen ready because you're going to need to pencil these out quickly. In chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 12, you're going to find God's promise to judge the enemies of his people. In chapter 9, verse 16, you're going to find God's promise to save and care for his people. In chapters 11 and set, in, in, in chapters 10 and 11, you'll find God's promise to judge the bad leaders of his people and care for his people like a shepherd. In chapter 14, you're going to find God's promise to set his people apart, make them holy to such a degree that even everything they utilize with their hands would become holy. But you're also going to find something in chapters 9 through 14 that's absolutely fascinating. All of this happens through one man, a king who is remarkably important to the history of God's people. Now, when these people heard Zechariah's night visions and they heard all about the temple and God being with them and the temple being restored and God protecting them from their enemies, what they heard in their cultural context was their monarchy would be restored as well. They heard their Messiah 
is coming. Their king who would restore them to the previous age of what they used to be. But Zechariah in chapters 9 through 14 shows them and us some images about this king that reveal this isn't just about Israel. This is about this king ruling over all the earth and the universe. Now look at his word with me for a moment to Joshua at the end of chapter 6. The high priest, he says, a crown is to be made of silver and gold and placed on the head of Joshua. Joshua foreshadows the one called the branch. The second time we've read about this person called the branch who would be a priest and a king. And people from all over the world would come to the temple of the Lord because of this priest king. Now in Jewish history, after reading these things, there arose a, an expectation of two messiahs. One who would be political like a king and one who would be spiritual like a priest. But Zechariah combines the priest king in one person. He will be a priest who cares for the souls of people, but he will be a king who cares for socio-political issues like a king. And when this priest king is on the throne, people from all over will come to worship him. But this king, according to chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, will come in humility. He will come humble and mounted on a donkey, indicating that he's not going to utilize military power to take his throne, but he'll utilize humility and meekness, which will clothe him with power. And according to chapter 12 and verse and chapter 13, he will be like a good shepherd who will be pierced and rejected in Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem realizes what they've done, they will mourn. And chapter 14, we're told that this king He will judge all the nations, and his reign will be over all the earth. Now, you can just imagine for a moment if you were in this original audience hearing these words. So what you're telling us is that God is with us. You're telling us the kingdom, the the temple is going to be completed. But you're also telling us that you're not done working for your people. That you're going to bring to us a champion, a mighty one, who will not just rule in Israel, but who's going to rule over the world? You mean he's going to take over, he's going to dominate Assyrians? He's going to bring all of our enemies to justice? And he's going to lead with humility? He's going to have the authority of a king, yet the wisdom of a priest? What kind of king is this? He's going to be rejected for a moment, yet he's going to rise to exaltation, where he's going to rule over all things? Can you imagine the hope? This will give to these people. But friends, listen, Zechariah's people have an odd vantage point. They are looking forward in history to this king. You and I have a unique vantage point because we are looking back in history on this king. And we get markers in the New Testament that reveal to us who this king is and that Aslan has indeed landed. We're told in Matthew chapter 21 that Jesus Christ came humble and mounted on a donkey into Jerusalem as they declared his great worth. We are told in 1 Peter chapter 2 that he was rejected by men and he was pierced for our sins so that we would be forgiven and made right with God. And we're told in Acts chapter 2 verse 37 that when some in Jerusalem heard the preaching of the gospel that they put Jesus to death, they were cut to the heart. We're told that in Hebrews chapter 10, that both offices, priest and king, are assigned to Jesus. That he made a single sacrifice for sins for all time, like a priest, 
But then he sat down at the right hand of God like a king. And we're told in John chapter 18 and Hebrews chapter 12 that he has established a kingdom that will never be shaken. See, when you when you read these words, when you hear these words, it's almost like Mr. Beaver speaking to you that Aslan is on the move. And indeed, he has landed and it stirs your heart like it would with little Lucy that you're waking up on Christmas morning. Our king has come and our king has established a kingdom that will never be shaken and will one day he will complete it all. You can see you can say amen to that. It's OK. Say amen to that. Right. That that is that is startling news. Hope believes in this king and his everlasting kingdom. So do you believe in this? Do you believe that Zechariah's king has come? And are you in his kingdom and submitted to his kingdom rule? So listen, again, if you're not a child of God, if you're not a Christian, then you are not a member of the kingdom of God and you're an enemy of the kingdom of God. And the call of Christ, of grace and mercy to you, is if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved and you'll be a member of his kingdom. The call of Christ this morning is to believe in Christ, trust in Christ. This king has come to give his life as a ransom for you, for your sin, that you might be saved and be born again and be part of the the kingdom of God. Let me ask those of you who are Christians, though. If you believe in this king and his kingdom, are we not, of all people, are we not those who have all the hope in the universe to believe that one day the darkness will lift and the morning sun will rise? Don't we of all people have reason to have courage and have our hearts raised toward heaven? See, our king has landed and he is indeed on the move and nothing can stop his hand from reigning over all the universe and over all the world. Aslan is on the move and he's indeed landed. What's intriguing about that story in the book of Zechariah is it combined with a an interesting thought that Zechariah seems to be depositing into the people's hearts about hope. It's, it's hope for a reason. Hope for the purpose of a long obedience in the same direction. It's hope to get us to obey. Hope to get us to work in the kingdom of God. Hope to do the things that God has called us to do. It's important to realize that throughout the book, you see this over and over again. One particular place you notice this is when the people were at the time of wondering when the temple's built, is that the time you'll restore Israel? You'll remember very vividly that Zechariah did not give them a time frame. Instead, he told them a king's coming and he's going to establish an everlasting kingdom. What's fascinating is in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had the same interaction with his disciples. After he was raised from the dead and just about to ascend to heaven, His disciples came and asked the exact same question. Is it now that you're going to restore Israel? And notice what Jesus' answer was. It's not for you to know, but instead you to go be my disciples and be my witnesses. In both situations, God's call for his people was long obedience in the same direction, not to know when he was going to finish all things. In other words, 
Don't get so wound up in the blades of grass of the prophetic words of the Bible that you forget that every day of your life you are to obey God, obey God, obey God, obey God, love God, love others, and believe that God in the end is going to do his work. Now, for those of you who are prophecy buffs, I know that hurts. But what you see in Zechariah is obey God, long obedience in the same direction, trusting that God is the one accomplishing all things for his glory. And eventually what's going to happen is all things will be brought under the authority of Christ. Now you might wonder, how in the world do we live in this world following this priest king? Let Brian Gregory stir your soul as we get ready to close. The church today, empowered by God's spirit, is called to live out the mission given to her by her ascended priest king. This means that the church must strive to avoid equating mission with merely socio-political change, only carrying out Christ's social royal dominion or social justice issues, and merely trying to save souls with little regard for the state of the world, only leading people to Christ's priestly work for them. Jesus fused together the offices of king and priest, so the church must fuse together the call to take to tackle social and political problems in kingdom-oriented Christ-honoring ways and the call to point people to the only one who can cleanse them from their sin and reconcile them to God. Long obedience in the same direction. So friends, listen, the world is full of disappointments and discouragements. But God is always on the move. And he wants his people, you, to have hope so that we and you will obey him over the long haul. Let's pray. Now listen, as we're praying this morning, maybe you're of the category that you're not a child of God and you know it. And this morning you've just had a stirring that you need to believe. And we would just say to you, man, turn your attention right now to Christ and just tell him, Lord, I believe in you. I believe what you've done for me. Forgive me for my sin. I want to be yours. And most of us in the room are Christians. And maybe this morning the Lord has just revealed to you where that you've that the Lord's not had your heart. Maybe it's been money. Maybe it's been. The pursuit of possessions. Maybe it's been uh, comfort. Maybe it's been uh, it's finding satisfaction in anything other than Christ. And this morning, you just need to turn your heart and repent. You need to turn to God. And wherever that is that the Lord's doing business with you, take a moment and just turn to Him. Father, we we want to be people who. Obey over the long haul. Trusting you that you are at work, that you are doing your work, that you are accomplishing your work, and that you are you are accomplishing all things for the glory of your great name. And there'll be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But Lord, the determining of when that day is is yours. Help us to put our hands on the plow and work and obey and trust knowing that you are at work. And even now, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I just pray, Father, that you would stir us with issues of our hearts. 
Thank you for revealing to us the Christ, the priest king who has come. And help us in hope to obey you, follow you, have courage in this world because you are indeed at work and you have indeed landed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.